0: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. my pronouns are she, her, hers, and today I'm joined by Steve Kirkland, Harris County District Judge and Democratic candidate for the Texas Supreme Court. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. We're glad to have you on. So could you tell us about your background and what brought you to run for the Texas Supreme Court?
1: grew up in West Texas, a little town called Abilene, came to Houston via Rice University, Graduated in the 80s, came out, sobered up, found a place in law school, went to school at night at University of Houston, graduated, uh, worked in private industry for a while with the oil company. Uh, Started off there and then was liberated and worked for real people, suing oil companies. That was fun. Took some time off away from law, developing low-income housing, and then was appointed to the municipal court bench here in Houston. Uh, by then, Mayor Lee Brown. He needed uh, a vote from my dear friend Denise Parker. Uh, we parlayed uh, the vote into more open LGBT officials here in the city by uh, putting me on the bench. And uh, from there, found out that I really had a knack for it and really enjoyed doing the the judging thing. Uh, 2008, uh, joined a group of Democrats running for judge here in Harris County, and with the help of Barack Obama and his long coattails, we were successful. So I've been on the bench now, or on a, a bench now for 13 years, and one of the things I've noticed over the last 13 years is that the Texas Supreme Court has been issuing opinions that I can only explain by politics based in uh, legal principles that mean anything to me. They're not based in the Constitution. They're not compelled by logic. The only way you can understand them is by looking at politics, particularly the politics of the Republican primary here in Texas. So they uh, tend to be strange politics, very extreme. So that was troubling to me in a number of ways. Uh, they gutted the Texas Open Beaches Act, They've uh, severely diminished the Freedom of Information Act, they refuse to their constitutional duty on school finance, and they have routinely set up roadblocks for ordinary people getting into court. I have a real problem with that. The kicker though, uh, I think for for me and for many people, was uh, the Texas Supreme Court decision last summer. Uh, in the Texas marriage equality case. Uh, You know, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court has twice said, if you're going to offer marriage to anyone, you have to offer it to everyone on the same terms and conditions. And they've said it twice, same terms and conditions means same terms and conditions. That's everything. Uh, A week after their last statement on that, the Texas Supreme Court said, we don't think they were asking the question of does that mean uh, you have to offer health benefits to same-sex married couples if you offer it to separate-sex married couples. It, it was just nonsense. Uh, and it was so crassly and crudely political and aimed at the Republican primary that uh, I said enough is enough. We have to stand up and talk about this. And so I did. There so, here I am, talking about
0: politics in the court and that politics doesn't belong in a court. Could you tell us more about how you view these politically motivated decisions of the current court as unconstitutional? How do you interpret the constitution differently?
1: So with respect to the marriage decision, we'll start with that one, Um, the US Supreme Court has decided and said twice what the constitution requires under the Equal Protection Clause. And yet the Texas Supreme Court is parsing its way around uh, the precise questions that were asked in those cases uh, and trying to say differentiate the case that was pending before them which dealt specifically with health benefits. Uh, And the reason behind that was clear. It was agitated and brought about by uh, Republican activists here in Houston, Texas. It was a clear political gambit to continue to now same-sex marriages. Uh, and they actually did a letter-writing campaign uh, where they inundated the justices with emails and letters, not only from, you know, to the general population, but the governor and the lieutenant governor all joined in and in it as well. So they took all of those letters and they accepted them as a friend of the court brief, which is something I've never heard done. Uh, So they're stepping outside the lines of due process of the law to render a decision that is in direct contravention of what the U.S. Supreme Court has said. And the U.S. Supreme Court is the arbiter of what the U.S. Constitution says. The Constitution says it is the supreme law of the land. So Texas Supreme Court is denying or defying the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court uh, on a constitutional decision. That is lawless behavior, um, and I don't think the voters in Texas appreciate that.
0: So, of course, as you mentioned, as a member of the Texas Supreme Court, you would not be able to violate the decisions of the United States Supreme Court. But there are major concerns right now on the left about whether the right-leading United States Supreme Court will make decisions that roll back civil rights and equal protections. Should this happen, what do you think the role of lower courts is in protecting civil rights and equal protections?
1: Well, one of the tenets of um, civil rights law and environmental law and a whole host of a variety of laws that we have is that local jurisdictions can be more protective of their citizens than the national uh, jurisdiction. In environmental law is particularly uh, well addressed on this. Uh, the local city can say we don't want a tire dump within a hundred feet of a school or a thousand feet of a school or something of that nature. And that may not be found in the federal environmental statutes. And even though the federal law is going to be supreme, the fact that the local law is more protective of local citizens is something that federal law respects, and we can see the same thing in civil rights areas as well. The local jurisdictions become the bulwark uh, and the backstop for backsliding, and that's important to remember. But it's also important to remember that it was local jurisdictions that led the way on a lot of progress we've had. The first marriage case came out of Hawaii. The second one came out of Massachusetts, and they stood alone for a long time before other cases and other jurisdictions started stepping up to the plate. So the local jurisdictions and the local courts can be uh, not only the backstop for backsliding, the stop on there, they can also be the
0: vanguard in pushing forward civil rights. So, looking a bit into your history, in December two thousand six, the Coalition for the Homeless of Houston and Harris County recognized your work in making the courts accessible to the homeless. Could you talk about that experience?
1: Yeah, that's a uh, one of one of my uh, really warm fuzzy spots when I look back over my history is is creating that court. Uh, we created a court where folks who were in a homeless shelter could access the courts in a non-threatening way. What we did was, if you've not been homeless, it's kind of hard to describe what happens. But when you get homeless, it doesn't mean you were always homeless. It means you had a life before that. You, know, you may have had a car. You may have had uh, a job. You may have had a lot of things going on. And when you lose your home, things start to fall apart. And you start to lose track of uh, where you're supposed to be, what, what you got to do next. You run out of resources for doing things that ordinarily we do. So, like, if you and I were driving down the street and we got a speeding ticket, we would know how to resolve it. We'd pay a, pay a fine or go take the driving course or something like that. And if, before we got that done, we were to lose our home, uh and our resources got uh, taken away or got dissolved or used up we would end up in what's known as a, a warrant status courts and the court system always has as its ultimate tool arresting people uh so we were faced with a situation in in Houston where people who were homeless could go to a shelter, but they were afraid to go to a shelter because that put them in a system and they could be subject to being arrested. Some of our shelters actually wouldn't take people if they were able to identify that they had an arrest warrant out on them, so that was a particularly problematic. So we had to find a way to get people from the streets into the shelters, uh, yet resolve these outstanding warrants whether it be for failure to pay or not showing up in court on the the date, whatever. So what we developed was a system where folks would uh, check into the shelter. The shelters had been cleared and vetted and trained by us to uh, identify the the potential clients who who would need assistance in court. Uh, And they would start tracking service that the people would do at the shelter. By the time they got a bank of community service hours, uh, that was large enough to take care of any outstanding issues that they might have, they would come to the courthouse, interact with the prosecutors just like every other citizen would, negotiate a deal, and instead of paying for their outstanding issues with money, they would pay for them with community service hours that they had already performed. Um, this allowed the shelters to reach out to people and offer a new service, an additional service, so that we could entice them to come off the streets. It allowed the folks who were in a program to continue on their program, not have it interrupted by going to, uh, having to go to jail to clean up the, the, the legal status. Uh, and it allowed the courts to get rid of old cases that they would never collect on anyway and close them out in an orderly fashion. So, it was a win-win-win all the way around. It had some, of course, some really neat sort of sociological, psychological components to it as well because people could... We did the court actually in the courthouse uh, our Coalition for the Homeless actually coordinated a special docket for folks. So, they had to actually come to the courthouse and they weren't programmed to come to the courthouse until they had some sense of stability so that they could get there, uh, and come in on their own, and when they got there they were checked in like regular folks uh, as being present, and they were able to leave the courthouse having accessed the justice system in a way that got them a result uh, that, that wasn't ruinous for them. It empowered them in a way that is quite unique and quite special. Plus, the uh, judges that served as the judge of the homeless court, and I did it for a number of years after we established it, are folks that are truly committed to helping people advance through recovery processes. Most of the folks who are on the street uh, have either a substance abuse problem or a mental health problem or both. think like upwards of 70-some percent of them are in some state of that. Uh, and the, the remainder are folks that are in transitional situations that uh, they just need a helping hand to get through. But everybody who has participated as a judge has been deeply committed to helping folks progress through that recovery process. Now, I personally went through, and and, and I'm still in recovery, I'm 33, I think it's 33 years now, uh, of sobriety from alcoholism. Uh, And when I first sobered up, I was homeless. I was fortunate that I had a friend that allowed me to sleep on his couch, so I wasn't on the street, but I didn't have, you know, a home of my own. Anyway, Um, so I had personal experience, so I could speak to it personally, uh, to the folks coming along. The folks who've taken over since then, uh, since I left, are uh, also deeply committed to it as well, so they can talk the language of recovery, too.
2: Stick around. We've got more of this great interview coming up right after the break. Hey, everybody. This is Nathan from Millennial Politics. We're going to take a quick break because we want to tell you about our new sponsor. A new company called CNote is an award-winning social enterprise that has created a new way to save where you can earn up to 35 times more on your savings all while increasing economic opportunity in local communities across America. The average CNote customer earned an extra $400 last year compared to traditional savings products. So not only do you earn more with CNote, but every dollar that you invest drives positive social impact. So instead of funding big bank bonuses, your money is gonna help female and minority entrepreneurs start small businesses build affordable housing, and support other community development projects. With CNOTE, you earn up to 2.5% while building a more inclusive economy, one community investment at a time. Sign up today at mycnote.com slash politics. Again, that's my, the letter is C, note, N-O-T-E dot com slash politics. And know that CNOTE does not charge any fees. There are no minimums and sign up take less than five minutes. Check them out.
0: You've spoken about your struggles with alcoholism. It's been uh, probably the biggest attack point against you in previous campaigns, even causing you to lose some campaigns. Could you tell us about your experiences with that and how you've managed to handle these really cruel and unfair attacks?
1: So, you know, growing up in Abilene as a gay boy in the 70s was not, you know, an ideal time to be growing up as a gay boy. Um, There were no role models. There were no TV characters, no movie characters. I mean, gay people just simply weren't depicted. Um, so I didn't even have a vocabulary to talk about it or express it until I got to university. And when I got to university, it was uh, alcohol flowed freely, so alcohol fuels a lot of my exploration. So I quickly became an alcoholic. I was not a quiet alcoholic. I was a very loud Public one, but I also would take to driving while I was drunk. So I was arrested several times uh, during that period of time. Um, so I had what's called, uh, what we often, so I have criminal record. In recovery circles, we call that jail therapy uh, because it was a significant part of you know, scaring me into getting a hold of uh, the issues of alcoholism. I also had friends who cared about me and would talk about uh, alcoholism and uh, family and other loved ones who were, the, who were trying to steer me into a, a recovery direction. Mm-hmm. I, I sobered up through the Alcoholics Anonymous program. It was good for me, it's not necessarily the one for everybody but it worked for me to get me sober and then I had to find a way of living to, to stay sober. Connections to people who understand and were supportive is a big part of that. Connections to socially beneficial programs, something where I'm giving back service is uh, a good part of that as well. Uh, and then, of course, there's you know a spiritual component as well of finding some kind of belief system of something greater than myself that uh, supports continuing on. After I sobered up, I met my husband, who's now been married to me for three years, although we've been together for 31 years, and I've had some friends who stood with me through all of that time as well. My recovery program has been long-standing and has been fairly stable for a considerable length of time. Uh, and I talk about having been arrested as being part of the process, and I've always done that. I just didn't do that except in places where it was necessary or useful to the conversation like homeless court. Um, or other places like that where it was going to be beneficial. So, when I ran for re-election in 2012, there was a litigant who was uh, unhappy with the result of a jury trial. Uh, And rather than accept his responsibility, he decided to find someone to run against me. And they talked about my arrest record. In fact, they got a copy of my rap sheet stripped off the dates and mailed it out to all the primary voters. Um, That was a particularly difficult period in my life, dealing with that kind of attack because, you know, I had paid my debt to society as it were, you know, using old language, but uh, I had paid my price for that. So it didn't seem fair, but then, you know, politics is never fair. Uh, And so I lost uh, and it was particularly depressing. Um, one of our local state senators, John Whitlock, pulled me aside and you know, found me and saw me running in the park one day. I was jogging the same time he was. He pulled me aside and gave me a really good pep talk about don't let the bastards beat you and you gotta pick yourself up and keep going. Uh, and so I did that. And what I did was I used this, you know, the notoriety now of, of the arrest record as an opportunity to talk more publicly and more frequently about recovery uh, and alcoholism. So that I speak on it probably once or twice a month at various groups and certainly way more frequently now uh, than I ever did before. So even though it was a horrible experience, uh, there has been some good come out of it because I, I speak about recovery way more now. And every time I do, there's always someone who connects with the message uh, and tells me about it at some point. I never know who it's going to be or when, it's, when they're going to tell me, but I know that there's somebody in the audience who needed, needs to hear it. And...
0: That's a good thing. So, going back to that special session you mentioned in which Texas Republicans in the state legislature tried to pass an anti-transgender bill, they also tried to pass an anti-immigrant bill that would have criminalized sanctuary cities. They actually did pass that bill. Oh, thanks. So, they, they also passed uh, an anti-immigrant bill that criminalized sanctuary cities. Along with that, recently, the United States Supreme Court ruled that undocumented Americans can be detained indefinitely. Do you believe that undocumented Americans deserve protections under the United States Constitution and the Texas State Constitution?
1: I do. I think it's actually fundamental decency that the due process requires a clear statement of why you're being detained and a clear path for your detention to end. And indefinite detention is not right under any read of what I can see in any of
0: our jurisprudence. So, if elected, you would be the first openly LGBTQ person ever elected to statewide office in Texas. What does that mean to you, and how would you use that position to inspire members of your community? Of
1: course, it means a lot for me personally to have pushed through there. I am likely also going to be, at the same time, uh, the first person in recovery to be elected uh, since Ann Richard. So uh, you know, there's a lot of communities that I speak to that is, is, is a breakthrough. And I intend to speak to all of who I am. I am a firm believer that you cannot leave any part of yourself at home when you enter the public arena. You've got to bring all of what you have. And that when you do that, you're connecting with people in ways that you don't know. That's part of part of why you do it, and part of what you do it for. I uh, gave a speech when I was first um, first uh, invested as a district court judge, where I recalled the uh, Harvey Milk's hope speech. You know, this is when you get all the uses in a room: the us labor folks, us black people, us brown people, us Chinese people, us gay folk, us lesbians, us transgenders. When you get us all in a room. Uh, We can do amazing things, but we can't get them all, we can't get them to do anything unless they have hope. And so, while the job is about doing law, sometimes a very technical process of applying law to facts, sometimes a more artistic process, it's still the job is about hope and making sure that everybody in the state has hope that they can fulfill their best, best estimates. I'm a firm believer that if you look at the government, you need to be able to see something that looks like you looking back at you. Uh, And when you're able to do that, you feel invested not only in the government, but you feel invested in uh, the society we all live together in. So, to me, that's a big part of what I'm doing is trying to make sure that we're all staying invested.
0: Now, lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign? Um, all right. Well, uh, follow me
1: on Facebook at Judge Sk. share it with people you know who can vote for us or people you know who have resources who can help uh, pay for the trips around the state. Texas is a huge state and it costs money to put... Gas in the car. When I travel by car, it costs money to buy a plane ticket. Uh, And I think I've already mentioned I'm uh, 58 years old or about to be 58 years old. So sleeping in a tent or sleeping in the car is not a good plan for me. I need to actually have a bed at night. So we have to have places to stay. We've got to raise money. At Judge SK is one way to find out where we're going to be. At Stephen Kirkland on Twitter is another way to find out where we're going to be. When we go to other cities, when we go to events, you usually see that there's a, uh, I'll tell folks I'm going, you can show up, bring people to meet me. That's another way to help spread the word. People who live in Texas, you can vote for me. And that's everywhere across the entire state, Uh, from El Paso to Beaumont, Amarillo down to Harlingen. You can vote for me. And you have family and you have friends who can also vote for me. So we need to make sure that people know they have a choice and that they have a choice that means something to you. So, if it means something to you, talk to your friends in Texas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to be paying attention to the courts right now. As we've seen uh, with a lot of Trump's executive orders, they really can be a defense from the threats to civil rights posed by the executive and legislative branches when we have bad folks like donald trump and his administration in power and it's really great to see someone like you running for the state supreme court especially in texas which has an all republican uh supreme court so thank you for speaking with us and uh we wish you the best of luck on your campaign
1: thank you very much
0: yeah of course To our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.